Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Stephen Gunyan. On the show this evening, Caroline Kremen from AdviceWorks joins me for a wrap of global news making the headlines. Then in the second part of the show, we look at APSA's Global Property Feeder Fund, and that's with Hugo Matchen. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making the headlines. Well, Brexit does not mean a certain exit. That's according to the man who drafted Article 50. <coughs> according to the author, Britain still has a choice on whether to withdraw or proceed. This comes after Brexit talks have failed to gain sufficient traction 17 months after the UK voted to leave the EU. JCPenney has reported positive results for the first time in five quarters. The struggling retailer, which had to close 139 stores as part of its restructuring drive, has reported a 1.7% uptick in quarterly sales. Its shares have lost two-thirds of their value this year. And Alibaba's singles-day sales blew past records, raking in more than $24 billion in 24 hours. In the opening three minutes, sales had already topped $1.5 billion. Annual sales from China's Singles Day have topped Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales combined. Take a look at this. It's a one-day shopping frenzy that leaves Black Friday in the dust. Sales on Saturday's Singles Day in China hit more than $25 billion in 24 hours, an eye-popping figure that broke the event's previous records. The spending festival is led by Chinese e-commerce titan Alibaba, with users across the country hunting down bargains online and in stores, many of them snapping up deals from their phones. This is our first time holding Singles Day on a weekend on a Saturday in today's wireless era. We have fully experienced in one day the changes in the way consumers live. For years, Singles Day has racked up more sales than Black Friday and Cyber Monday combined. This year, after a star-studded event featuring Nicole Kidman and singer Pharrell Williams late Friday, the company said in just the first two minutes, pre-orders drove a billion dollars of sales and 10 billion in just over an hour. Next comes a week of delivery blitz with couriers and robots ready to move an estimated 1.5 billion packages. Well, Caroline Kremen from AdviceWorks with me in studio now. So let's start off with Alibaba. $25 billion in sales in just 24 hours, up 40% from last year. Uh, it was on a weekend this year, and that's, it's the first time that Singles Day has been held in a weekend. Do you think that helped to, to push the buying? I don't think it made any difference whatsoever. I think this thing has just been increasing exponentially year after year after year. It's, it's such a phenomenon. You know, when you actually look at those figures, okay, it's 25 billion, but put that in context of Amazon Prime Day, where uh, the sales are between 1 and 2.2 billion, and the Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales of, of Amazon, which are about 7 billion. You know, it, it, it just dwarfs those. Um, I think uh, there were at one stage 375,000 transactions per second being processed. On and it didn't crash. It didn't crash. <laughs> you know, take a lot to take note. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 175,000 on, on average. So it, it's just an absolute phenomenon. And if you look at its baby competitor, you know, JD.com, which is about 10% the size of Alibaba. Alibaba is about the, almost the same size as Amazon now. Um, it, it doesn't do a, a single day. It does 11 days from the 1st of November to the 12th of November. Okay. But it had sales of 19 billion. So you, you're just looking, you know, we've, we're so focused on Amazon, 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 that we forget that there are similar platforms um, in, in China with 300 million consumers behind it, where the online shopping experience is just growing and growing. 90% of the sales on Alibaba came through their mobile app. 
you know, and it was, mm -hmm. was, was actually processed with their own payment system, Alipay. So they, they even earned something from that. So from an investment case, you know, people need to stop focusing so much on, on the Amazon. And Do you like stop. Alibaba? I like Alibaba. I think it's probably a little bit expensive relative to JD and, and Amazon. You know, it's difficult to look at price to earnings ratios on these things because, you know, the earnings are, are relatively meaningless right now. But from a price to sales point of view, you know, Alibaba is, is, is not the is not not the best. The Amazon is, is second best, but JD Group is about 1.9. So it's actually looking relatively attractive. Um, JD Group is structured very similarly to Amazon. Um, Amazon has got this vertical integration. You know, where it's got its fulfillment centers and the orders come into Amazon, they go out from a fulfillment center. Alibaba is a little bit different in, in that it's a marketplace. So you'll have different stores and those suppliers are actually responsible for, for so very, very different. Okay, so it doesn't cases. handle all the logistics. No. Um, it because one and, 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 and a half platform. billion packages had to be delivered. Well, <laughs> and, and, and that's actually quite extraordinary. And, and, and I, I believe that something like the first package that went out uh, at midnight on, on that night was delivered in under 13 minutes. Delivered in under 13 minutes. Okay. Uh, Take note one day only. It keeps you waiting <laughs> for two weeks. <laughs> um, is there something about the Chinese consumer that mm. tends towards online sales as opposed to kind yeah. of going into a physical shop? You know, I, I just think that they're 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 terribly tech savvy. You know, coming back to that that payment system, um, ninety percent on 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 AliPay. When you look at Amazon, it's only about thirty percent is actually going through mobile payment systems. So this is um, you know it's a consumer group, it's a society that that lives on their cell phones in a way that I don't think we can really imagine. <laughs> And, and they've really embraced that, that tech sector. You know, a lot of those things, you know, we take for granted, you know, especially where we live here in Santon, that you can go to Santon City and you can see all those wonderful brands. But if you're in, um, you know, slightly more provincial towns in China, you're not necessarily going to see that, but, yeah. but you still want to spend and you've got money to spend. So uh, it's just the right culture. Um, and, and, and you know the way they do it is with you know the big bands and, and they do a big show as, as the thing is about to start. So I think it just plays into that, that culture very, very effectively. Well, let, let's move to physical retail yeah. um, because we've had quite a few companies in the US reporting a few of the yes. retailers there. And <laughs> let's start off with JCPenney because yes. we had that headline. And although it, di it did report a, a wider loss for mm. the quarter because it's been shutting down stores and yeah. I suppose paying off people and I think it was discounting inventory, but same store sales were up 1.7% and that was yeah. unexpected. Um, or the like for sale, like for like sales. Um, it was one of the few that actually had positive sales. Coles had positive sales of 0.1 percent, and of course Macy's was a disaster. It was around 4 percent. I wouldn't read too much into it. Um, you know, they um, they're actually still down year on year, and it doesn't look like that trend is reversing anytime soon. Um, all of these these retailers now they're not you know they're not your Walmart, your grocery retailers. They are your soft furnishings, you know, your apparel, your electronics goods. You know, they're just hemorrhaging to Amazon right now, chiefly Amazon. Um, I think it's JCPenney's down two-thirds, Macy's is down half a percent, half, half 50 percent this year. So it's it's not a sector that's going to turn around. They've, they've done all the right things. You know, they, they've tried to control the inventory. They've instituted loyalty cards. Um, they're decreasing floor space, closing stores. And, and yet every single time you actually look at these companies and, and they're still in a lost position and, and I can't see they're turning around imminently. 
probably at some stage there is going to be you know a case for saying look they, they've hit rock bottom I don't think retail is entirely dead um, you know I think we still do like to feel things touch things but yeah. I think we're moving into an era now where we actually just don't know what retail is going to look like in five years you know it's 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 going to be vastly different from from what from what we see now and it's too difficult to call as to which one of those is really going to be better positioned which one is going to have the the best strategy and which one is actually going to be around in five years because uh, and i suppose they can't really compete with the likes of amazon or no. alibaba because of the, no. the physical infrastructure that they have to support well you know, there, there are other ways to play it. You know, you don't need one particular type of um, business case. Um, if, if you look at Coles, I think Coles has actually got quite an interesting view of, of how they're going to position themselves, where you've seen JCPenney and, and Macy's close stores. All that Coles has said, they're going to keep the same amount of stores. They've got the biggest footprint, um, the most amount of stores of all of them, but they're going to reduce the size. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have computer systems where people can go in and actually see, well, if you like a dress and it's, that c- it's not that color, you know, it will actually be delivered to you. So a bit of a combination. And I think that's actually quite an interesting way to play it. It doesn't seem to be, you know, figuring in, in their, in their um, financials <laughs> yet. <Soon>. But, but <laughs> I, I think there is certainly scope for a business case other than the Amazon case. And, and I think even Amazon is going to, to the bricks and mortar route now. But um, it's early days yet. <laughs> okay. Um, so the UK told that Brexit is reversible and by the man who wrote Article 50. Yes. His name is John Kerr. I've never heard of him, but mm-hmm. um, I suppose he's going to become famous now. Uh, <laughs> and this comes as the EU wants clarity on the sort of financial obligations that UK is going to, o- to honour. Mm. I mean, do you see this pushing forward? We have, I think, 15 months until it actually triggers... I don't really know what's going to happen there. I don't think Theresa May knows. I think I think there's such a confusion now. Um, I, I think she did make a mistake in that she probably triggered the Article 50 too early. You know, you really want to trigger that when you, you've got a game plan as to what you're really going to do, yeah. and, and they really seem to be very clueless. Um, it does look as if at some stage in the very imminent future she might actually face a no-confidence vote, so she might not even be around. So you're faced with Britain, who's gone through three, potentially three different prime ministers during the most difficult period of their time, and uh, you've got Jeremy Corbyn living on the on the side, so <laughs> just really bad for that economy. In fact, Jeremy Corbyn probably frightens me more than Brexit, quite frankly. Yeah, but yeah. well, I can't instill much confidence in investors, yeah. um, uh, and also not instilling much confidence in investors, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we have issues about his tax cuts. Yeah. Um, last week, a bit yeah. of a, a, a jado there, uh, and he's also off in Asia at the moment, signing and trade deals with China. Hmm. Okay, the Chinese are very, very clever. You know, I think they've learned how to play this man. Um, you, you know, they bring him there, they, 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 make, they make very nice to him. I think he turned, he said something to Xi Jinping and, and turned around and said, you know, you're a very, very nice man or very, you know, he, me, 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 me. But I think the Chinese just look at this and say, this man is quite frankly an idiot. <laughs> you know, we're going to give him a few trade deals and pass him off and we'll just go back to business as usual, which is actually being very aggressive from a trade point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, expanding their Belt and Road program. Um, and, and really, the U.S. Is just, is just standing on its own right now, you know, away from the rest of the world, very, very negative for the U.S. long term. A- any concern that the, the Trump tax plan won't be pushed through, um, which could see, I suppose, a bit of a re- reversal on equity markets since they have been pricing it in? You know, it's, it's actually chaotic. You know, as, as, you know there, there's a House tax plan and there's a Senate tax plan, and, and they're not the same. And, and, and these guys are coming up for, for, some of them are coming up for elections next year. You know, and, and 
you know, to get a to get a decent uh, uh, simplified. I don't think it's even a question of a tax cut. You want a simplified tax code because there's just too many deductions. But you know, to to start to simplify that, that means you you need to start to take away some of those special interests and those special deductions, and and that's going to hurt in the election because it can be used mm -hmm. against you. So I think people are looking at this just possibly from the personal level, that it's not going to play well to fiddle with that all that much. So I don't really ho hold out much hope for too much of a change on the personal income tax level. I think they're more likely to have some success on the on the corporate level. Um, okay, that's from the 35 down to 20%. Correct, and, and, and also the, the repatriation of, of foreign earnings. Um, I think that's potentially less controversial and, and a little bit easier to do. But I think I think the market is really priced for perfection. You know that we're going to have the slow corporate rate. You know everyone is going to get a nice big interest. You know they'll have more earnings because their tax rate would have gone down. I'm not exactly sure how. Um, and I think the reality is starting to set in mm -hmm. a bit, and people are having their doubts. And I think it's going to be interesting to see which way it plays out. I don't know. If, I don't have much hope, but I think there will be some type of reform. It's just not going to be the, the massive reform that they'd wanted. Okay, well, we have to leave there for a moment. We're going to a short break. Mm -hmm. When we come back, we take a look at APSA's Global Property Feeder Fund. That's with Hugo Matchon. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investors. Still with me in studio, Caroline Kremen from AdviceWorks. We're also joined on the line by APSA's Hugo Machen to look at their Global Property Feeder Fund. Hugo, thanks for joining us this evening. So it's a feeder fund, so basically investors are investing in RANDs, but into a basket of global property. Yes, Stephen, that's right. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, the purpose of the fund is to provide South African investors with a global and uh, liquid real estate exposure. Um, the fund actually takes a very sort of specific view, which is that of um, global cities. So we look to invest in the strong and strongest urban economies out there. So, um, because I noticed that the biggest exposure is to the United States, but your two top holdings are in Hong Kong. So I suppose that's the kind of global city you're, you're looking at. That's correct. I mean, if you look at the, um, the index ranking of global cities that we produce, um, you can see very clearly that there are some um, very strong Asian economies out there, China, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, and then also some of the North American cities, particularly the, the gateway cities on the West Coast, where you're seeing very strong economic um, performance from the knowledge-based economies and, and the demand for real estate in those cities. So, so what essentially are you looking for? when you do identify the, those global cities? What, what, what makes up for a global city? Would London be there despite Brexit? Uh, yes, London would be there despite Brexit. I mean, we, we, I mean being, um, being researchers, we very much look at um, factors in terms of building a model and, and ranking. So it's very much an impassioned view, if you like, um, from, from a demand, economic demand perspective. Um, London still ranks very highly for us, given that um, you have a very broad-based economy um, and, you know, you have lots of top-ranked universities. Um, and so, so for us, we, we still view London as, as a good place to invest from a real estate perspective. 
Mm. Caroline, what's your thoughts on that, identifying those global cities like Hong Kong, like London, like those West Coast cities that Hugo spoke about? You know, I think there's an increasing move, you know, for people to actually go to those global cities. So I don't think you can be very far wrong in actually investing in property in any one of those global centres. I think the question really is, are you going to get the exchange rate right and how the exchange rate in those particular territories are going to move? So I'm curious. Um, um, your fund actually consists of exchange rate swaps. Um, are those um, dollar hard currency um, or are they, are they rand, rand hard currency? swaps yes yeah, so so the way that it works at the moment is you have um, you have local um, currency exposure which then gets brought back into um, into uh, rand into local currency there so yes there is an element of taking that um, that foreign exchange exposure but our view is that over time that to a certain degree, it's going to be the well. To a very large degree, it's going to be the performance of the underlying companies that we're investing in. Um, and the way that our process is set up, and the way that we look at um, investing in, in global real estate, is very much a stock pickers fund. So we look for the way that we sort of term it is that twin moat effect of the strongest global cities economies and then the strongest companies within their subsectors. So we're essentially looking for those kind of local sharpshooters, which um, which South African investors um, wouldn't necessarily be able to have exposure to um, outside of you know really investing in a fund such as this. Mm. So, so Hugo, with the exchange rate swaps, does that mean the investor doesn't get the full benefits of the currency swings, particularly if they're going in, in favour of the rand or in, in favour of, of a rand hedge? Yeah, so we're looking to um, sort of smooth that currency exposure to a certain degree, um, but it's it's one of those things that there's a there's a timing impact there, isn't there? So you're never going to totally escape um, your currency exposure, um, but as I say, the the idea being is that. You know, we're very much looking at this as a long, long-term investment, and from a long-term perspective, um, we would sort of, we would sort of say to to clients that that looking at these very strong, you know, global city economies, very strong companies, that that is, you know, ultimately what you're investing in over long periods of time. Currency is something that is kind of more intermittent. Mm. Um, how about uh, the current environment? So looking more short-term, and particularly with rising interest rates in the UK and also in the United States. Does that, does that change your approach to any of those, those global cities, maybe reducing exposure to some jurisdictions, increasing exposure in others? Well, actually, um, Stephen, the you know, a potentially rising interest rate environment is, is, is a very interesting question for real estate because, um, again, it goes back to um, this fund and, and the relatively unique characteristics that it has in terms of uh, the exposure that it takes, which is if you're looking at the best of the best, um, one of the mantras that we always sort of talk about with this fund is that of pricing power. Um, and if you've got pricing power in the strongest um, urban economies, it gives you that ability to, to weather increased interest rates. The opposite of that, really, from a real estate perspective, is where you're just investing for yield as opposed to total return. And, and this fund is very much a total return proposition. The yield um, investors in real estate are vulnerable to interest rate rises because you're basically taking a bit of a bond proxy. As your cost of funds go up, um, your, your returns are reduced. So um, we're very much a total return investor. Appealing to you, Caroline? 
Um, not particularly. Uh, you know, I either like lots of yield or, or lots of growth, and, and, and this is, is one of those that really doesn't give you a lot of yield, and it's, it's not really high growth. Um, you know, if you look at, and it's just, it's not fund specific. I think the fund is very, very nice. It's, it's probably the sector specific um, globally. It hasn't been an, a stellar performer. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, 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 it's probably not the, the greatest place to park your money if, if you want an enormous amount of growth or even even a medium type of growth. But it is a safe place to put your money. You know, so if you are possibly one of those investors, you know, in a preservation or a pension fund or, or you know, to, to actually park a bit, a few of these assets, it's, it's, it's not bad. I think there are cheaper alternatives. Um, the total expense ratio here is 2.87%. And, you know, if you look at the South African ETF market, you know, there's two ETFs there that actually come in underneath that that do a very very similar thing yeah Hugo so. are, are you seeing competition from the ETF markets and particularly in South Africa where we there have been a couple of global property ETFs launched over the past year yeah I think that's a, it's a very good point because I think it goes back to the heart of the the active management um, business in, in terms of um, funds so what I would say is that the way that our process is a very systematic process is set up, it's impossible for the ETFs to replicate. Um, and we would actually, um, funny enough, we would urge um, clients that if they want a very generic um, global real estate exposure, that the ETFs are a good place to go if that's, um, if that's what they're looking for. On the very, very sort of other end of the spectrum, um, the global cities approach that we take is not possible to replicate. So the 56 names that we own in this portfolio or we have investments in this portfolio, um, have a very specific risk-return profile um, and quite a concentrated portfolio as well um, is something that we're very comfortable with because the degree to which we underwrite those positions, we think that will provide a very good uh, risk-adjusted compound return to, to our clients over a long period of time. So it's really, I think that the, the area that we would question um, and, and being objective about this is really those kind of commoditized real estate exposures that, that charge an active fee. I think it's, it's absolutely fine to charge an active fee provided you, pro, you, know, you, you provide clients with, with exactly what they're looking for in terms of, um, you know, in terms of a fund that does something slightly different. Um, and we would you know, argue that, that this fund does exactly that. Okay. Uh, apart from the geographical um, diversification that you're getting through um, the, the mix of the US and Asia Pacific region, etc., how about across different sectors within, within mm -hmm. property itself? So I, I see you have some Hong Kong property developers in there, you have industrial real estate. Any particular areas that you, that you do like at the moment? Yeah, there's, there's plenty, and I think that's a very good point because the mantra is, is very much, you know, not all cities are created equally and not all real estate is cre created equally. And in, in fact, if you sort of look under the bonnet a little bit, um, it's there's some specific subsectors of real estate that are doing very well. Um, you know, the, the great shopping centre in the sky, as we like to call it, is really impacting on, on shopping malls um, in terms of the demand from e-tailing. But that demand is actually being transposed to warehouses where um, customers need goods stored and then delivered, you know, into those very large um, urban cities that, or global cities that, that we've spoken about. So that's one area of, of serious interest and in how technology is really changing the, the real estate um, scene is, is really quite rapid and quite 
quite marked. Um, and another area as well that, that we like and that we have exposure to is, that is, is data centers. I mean, literally the storage of you know, your data, um, the closer and uh, to a large global city on a super fiber highway, the stronger the return that you can potentially make. So again, you can see how technology in our everyday lives is changing the demand for real estate. Uh, and we very much look at um, the, the way that we can capture that within the fund. I mean, we were chatting about this earlier in the show about JCPenney and some of its peers closing down stores um, or cutting back on space um, because of the growth of the likes of Amazon and, and Alibaba. So, so that's something you're seeing more demand for warehouses and, and something you would want to invest in. Uh, that, that's correct, Stephen. I mean, what we're seeing as well is that warehouses that are really located um, in very, very close proximity um, to big, big city centres are having um, huge um, <laughs> rental demand um, or seeing huge rental demand. Um, you know, if you look at, in particular in the US, where there's uh, a lot more retail space per capita than anywhere else in the world, if you look at those very generic B and C grade malls, um, they're really struggling to get people through the doors because the experience is, is basically commoditized. So a lot of the stuff that you can buy there, you can just as easily buy online. So there's a very, very clear, in real estate terms, a very clear transference of value between BNC grade type malls um, and warehouses close to um, major city centers. Okay, uh, and maybe just finally, I see you've got a tiny percentage in emerging markets. Uh, which emerging markets are those? And are, are you seeing opportunities in emerging markets at the moment? Yeah, good spot. Um, we are um, we have a, a small exposure to um, a company in Mexico City. Mexico City ranks very highly on our index. This company ticks all the boxes for us, um, and you know we've been to see all the assets. You know we pride ourselves on, on being able to kick the tires. Um, in terms of broader sort of emerging markets as well, you know we are you know we, we undertake um, extensive due diligence, but. You know, if, if there is a higher degree of risk in potentially an emerging market or a developing market, then that will be reflected in the um, size of the exposure that we'll take. But if everything does stack up and it does align um, from, a, from a process point of view, then, then we're happy to, um, to take that exposure. Hugo, and we have to leave it there with you. Thank you very much for joining us this evening, Hugo. Um, Caroline, you get the last word. Um, I suppose we have yeah. seen a move to specialty um, real estate in South Africa as well with storage and the likes, and also yeah. warehousing type um, Equitas, which is, which is a warehouse this type is real estate company. probably one of the few areas that is actually growing globally, and um, you just got to remember that the, the margins on those <laughs> things are, are not as good as they were in, in the retail space, but I don't think we're ever going back there. Um, look, I think it's a very um, good quality underlying um, selections within this fund. But yeah, that whole sector, the performances, especially overseas, is, is not that great. You know, so if you, if you have a, a nine-month performance of 6.23 and you take nearly 3% fee off that, it's just not looking that attractive. But it's a safe haven. It's a no, potentially, yes. <laughs> potentially. Yeah. Caroline, we have to leave it. Thank you very much for coming through. That's all we have for the show this week. Thanks again to Hugo and Caroline for their insights. Many thanks to you for watching. Same time next week. Goodbye.